0: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing great.
1: Vegas has treated me really, really well this weekend, so I'm I'm feeling great.
0: Well, I... You know, you're talking like it's past tense. I mean, today's your birthday here. I mean, it is your birthday. You're the big, you're 70 today, is that right? <laughs> 69 and I owe you one? What's the deal? Oh, no, no, you're an asshole today? Is that how old you are? No. Just, just every day. <laughs> no,
1: I'm like, 64 today. Yeah, feel like I'm 24.
0: Maybe not after Vegas, though, right? Maybe not. No, Vegas was, Vegas was easy on me this year. I was
1: really surprised, you know, because when you come out to Vegas, <clears throat> kind of no. gear yourself up for the game, right? want to make sure you're mentally, physically, m- emotionally prepared. I, I, was re- I got myself pretty psyched up and thought I was going to play a little hard here, but I've been in bed every night at 9 o'clock. It's just
0: bizarre. It is bizarre, and it was kind of fun earlier today, uh, as we're taping this on Sunday, you had the entire Something to Wrestle crowd sing you happy birthday.
1: Yeah, that kind of made me, you know, cheer up just a little bit. That was, it was heartwarming.
0: Well, and we hope that you guys are enjoying a very special edition of 83 Weeks. We've had our man JoJo uh, help us put together some best-of clips. So if you've missed uh, some of the fun that we've had thus far, uh, today's a chance for everybody to uh, hit the reset button and catch up because it's hard to believe now we've done this for more than a year.
1: I know. I noticed it the other day when I went back and took a look at our catalog on the platform, and I went, wow. And, you know, you – on average i think every show is usually about two two and a half hours so there's about 120 hours of our gaga floating around out there in the digital universe for people to have fun with
0: and we're going to try to uh condense that down today and make a little best of action we appreciate you being along for the ride and i guess you saw it was announced that uh we're going to do a Starcast three in chicago can you believe i'm dumb enough to sign up for this not once not twice but now three times
1: I don't know, man. I didn't think you'd—well, I really—deep down inside, I knew you'd do it after the first one. Uh, you actually denied that you would do another one for about an hour and a half or two hours. Um, but I thought, man, if he does another one of these, he's, he's going he's gonna to put himself over the edge. And sure enough, you did another one. And you not only did it—I'm not putting it over because we're, we're partners here— but you and your staff did a really great job this year. Pulling something off like this is so— difficult there are so many variables and I don't care if you've done it one time if you've done it a thousand times there's always going to be something that you couldn't have possibly ante- anticipated unless you had a crystal ball uh, that's going to go wrong and the key is to have really good people around you that can pick up the ball and run with it just because they're smart enough to figure it out and you do so you guys did a great job hats off to all of you
0: well that's nice for you to say man and uh, we're looking forward to getting together in Chicago I know you've had a lot of fun in Chicago back in the day and It'll be fun to uh, put the band together one last time, maybe before the all gets away from us.
1: Yeah, we'll do we'll do that. Maybe uh, we'll we'll connect with uh, our good friend uh, Mancow, and uh, head out head to his uh, amazing restaurant in downtown Chicago. So yeah, Mancow's Cow, Man a big wrestling fan. He loves our podcast.
0: Well, I hope the rest of uh, the wrestling universe is digging our podcast because we're digging doing it for you. So now, without further ado. Some best of 83 weeks. So there was a constant
1: battle with arenas, but that wasn't Eric Bischoff sitting behind the desk going, okay, guys, let's find out where they're going and let's book an arena down the street. That's that's bullshit.
0: Let me just say, I can't wait for you and I to talk about Zane Bresloff a little more. It's not our topic today, but probably one of the unsung heroes of professional wrestling. Um, triple H sort of takes credit for the idea but Vince Russo is the one who actually wrote and put the words rocket launcher in the script and in the end the WWF's Magic Man, Richie Posner, made that shit happen within 24 hours. Well, it's a Jeep. W- where do you stand on this narrative? Now for 20 years we've heard people say, and then we drove a fucking tank tonight. It's a goddamn Jeep, is it not? It was a Jeep. <laughs> and like <laughs> And you,
1: you, you remember, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago on our first show, you know, I've talked about this before and I hate to repeat myself because I know the audience doesn't really want to hear it, but when, when people tell these same stories over and over and over again, because a lot of these moments, like you know, the invasion and so forth, they come up. They come up with me. They come up with everybody else involved with it. And guys tell these stories. Every time they tell the story, they, they make it a little bigger. They make it a little more exciting, a little more interesting. And they tell the story in a way that puts a brighter light on them. And I think this is a perfect example of that. Now, I've, I've heard, <laughs> based on everything I've heard, I'm not going to name names. I didn't have anything to do with Vince Russo. He may have been a part of it. But my understanding is Bruce Pritchard did as well, right? Or more so. So you know, I wasn't there. I'm not going to you know take sides or claim that I know for a fact something that I wasn't there to witness myself. Unlike many other people, um, I don't know who came up with it, but it was effective. It was a fucking brilliant move. Whoever came up with it, it worked, and it worked primarily not because of the idea of them driving in a jeep that they call a tank and dressed up like you know comic book soldiers and all of that, not because of any of that. It worked, in my opinion, because of Sean Waltman. Right it worked because a, a big character in the NWO and Sean was, he was a supporting cast member. He wasn't Nash. He wasn't Hall. He wasn't Hogan, but he, damn, he was important. And he was a part of that, that chemistry and that, that rebellion that NWO, res, you know, represented to the audience. And when I fired him, And he jumped over and and cut that promo and then was a part of the invasion. That was a crack in the NWO armor and a crack in the WCW armor. I think Sean Waltman probably deserves more credit for the success of that invasion than Triple H, everybody else that was in that little Jeep that they call a tank, and whoever's idea it was. Because if Sean Waltman would not have been a part of that, it would have flopped. Or it's, you know, I I don't know if it would have flopped, but it certainly would not have had the impact that ultimately it had. I think Sean Waltman was the star of that.
0: Russo freestyled. We have no idea what was going to happen. We don't know if Eric Bischoff is going to send 10 guys out there to beat the crap out of them. We don't know if he's going to call the cops and they're, everybody's going to be arrested, but that was the appeal of it. The unpredictability, how in God's name, can you turn that off? Obviously, you guys weren't ready for this. To the best of your recollection, was anyone directed to call the police that day?
1: No. And that's, again, just Russo, you know, blowing more sunshine up his own ass, which is a really, you know, hard thing to do, but he's pretty good at it. Um, I, first of all, how would I, if, if I don't know they're coming, how the hell would I have had 10 guys waiting for them? Well, I mean, he, just on the face of it, isn't it pretty fucking stupid?
0: I mean, I don't know because some of the guys who are coming, their brother works there, and Scott Armstrong even says he had heard that the WWF was coming, but he didn't know what that meant or or how. So, you're saying, as far as you knew, there were no rumors about them showing up. Like that. I heard,
1: I heard nothing about it. If I would have known about it, and I and I listen. My my body of work in that period of time speaks for itself. Had I known that they were coming, I would have had the door open. I would have instructed Doug Dillinger to tell his security crew to make sure that they could make their way to the ring, because that would have been amazingly good TV on my network. There's no way I would have had 10 guys, you know, Bruce is so full of shit. That's just again making himself sound more dramatic and more, you know, and 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 smarter and more creative. We had no idea that they were coming. Had I known they were coming, I would have invited them into the ring and we would have let the cards fall where they may. Cause nothing would have happened. These guys wouldn't have beat the shit out of each other. They're all friends. The boys didn't have any, they didn't have a dog in the hunt.
0: They, they but, could care less. But that's. I guess there's two things I want to ask there. One, were you at all concerned that, I mean, had the door been opened, it would have essentially been curtain call number two and this whole, you know, back no, and forth war is no. really exposed as not really existing.
1: Absolutely not. Why would I have cared? Well, would I have cared if the WWE to try to get forget, <laughs> you got to remember again, context is freaking King here. People, you can believe me. You can not believe me. You can think I'm trying to put myself over. But just for a fraction of a second, put yourself in my shoes. WWE, a year and a half before that, two years before that, Vince McMahon's MO was never acknowledge a talent. Or excuse me, never acknowledge a competition. Don't put him over. Hell, he was selling like a bitch. (laughs) I would have loved to have him have his crew show up on my show. It would have been awesome talk about selling my god it when would you, have been perfect
0: when you were on jericho's podcast you once said it's the one thing i really regret if i could change one moment it would be that where we found out wwe was at the door i would have let him in not that i would have wanted haku or dave taylor or one of those guys to do it but it would have been the greatest moment in wrestling you still feel there that you go way. okay ditto that uh, so let's keep going here and, and talk about, you know, your memories of that day, and so you're saying you didn't know they were there, you know, nobody really knew, and then you find out they are there. How did you find out who told you, where were you, what was going on at the time? I was in the center of the
1: ring when this all went down. I believe I was cutting a promo in, in the ring. And I remember, uh, Annette, Yothers, who was, uh, she was kind of a floor director she worked really close with Craig leathers and, you know, she was very instrumental in, you know, pulling, the, helping to pull the whole thing off. And I had an IFB in my ear, but as was always the case, especially in the scope, cause it was a small arena. It was a little hard to hear the truck, especially when you're in the middle of a promo. And I remember, you know, the truck was probably trying to, to get my attention. And I might've just been ignoring them because I was in the middle of my, my promo. Um,
0: and this, this, I wasn't, saw done, this uh, wasn't done live, right? I mean, you're saying you're just doing a walkthrough that day, doing a promo in the ring. No, I'm not doing a promo. I'm doing it. I'm in the ring. But that's what I'm saying, though. This was taped in the afternoon. It's daytime. So, I mean, there wouldn't have been a crowd that, that
1: part of it. I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know anything about that. My recollection is that that went down while we were, while we were live on the show well but that's how i
0: remember it it would have been fucking daytime i mean the, the video is is daytime and, and this would have been evening obviously so it would have been dark um but either way you were in the ring working through a promo or doing a walkthrough or whatever when you hear and so when you come out of the ring you it's know, over it's, it's already happened it's over okay kevin nash says he drove by it and didn't even realize it was dx he just thought it was like crazy fans booker t says he didn't know about it until it actually happened and and scott armstrong says that you know as we mentioned earlier he knew something was going to happen the WWF might be doing something but no one knew what and and again i guess we should mention scott armstrong's brother is road dog uh waltman and hunter were, were sort of on record as saying they thought the right idea was to go straight into the building first and that that would have been smarter than sort of teasing it and giving wcw an opportunity to close the door Bruce Pritchard would tell a different story and says he was told that legally they couldn't go into the building. So that's the reason they sort of played it out the way they did. But Nash is on the other side of the door, according to his story with Scott Hall, trying to convince the guy at the arena to open that big garage door up.
1: Okay. Now, wait a minute. See, this is why it's so hard for me. So in one breath, we're saying Kevin Nash didn't know what was going on. He drive, he drove by it and saw it. And now all of a sudden he's inside of the building
0: trying to open the door, which is it? Well, here's what happens. As you recall, they're, they're, they're posted out front interviewing fans for an extended period of time. They're, they're shown doing promos and driving up to the scene. And then eventually later is when they try to come down the ramp. So they had been shooting all that other shit as Kevin drove past, because it's not like they just drove straight for the door. If that makes sense. Um, No, it doesn't. I mean, I, I mean, I, Whatever. Which part don't you understand, Eric? They didn't drive tra- straight down the fucking ramp. They sat out front and interviewed fans and did promos first.
1: No, I'm just trying to get the timing. I'm trying to put this together in my head. Well, and we go well, from Kevin it, Nash was driving night by night. and not know what's going on to all of a sudden in this conversation, Kevin Nash is trying to get somebody to open up the door. So whatever. Sorry for being you know, a little confused.
0: Yeah, it was clearly 20
1: years confused. ago, and the way you're laying it out is just a little bit fucked up. But let's
0: continue. What's more fucked up is that you think you're in the Promo with fans and it's goddamn daytime.
1: That is pretty fucked up.
0: It's daytime. How are you doing a promo? <laughs> it's fucking daytime,
1: Eric. It's you're- 20 years ago. They're on the East Coast. It's an Eastern
0: time zone. They're not in fucking California. It's clearly nighttime when you're cutting a promo. How do
1: I know it's daytime when I'm inside of a building? I'm trying to remember. Fuck, I'm trying to put together something that happened 20 freaking years ago. I'm doing my goddamn best. Let's try to stay in a timeline if
0: we can. Okay. All right, fine uh th- What was happening on the other side of the door as far as you heard it? Since you say Nash and Hall weren't fucking there, but you wouldn't know. I didn't say they weren't there. You're I doing- was
1: trying to figure out where they were because you said they were driving by.
0: Would you let go of this shit? Okay. What's going on on the other side of the door as far as you've been What's led to believe? I know. I'm in the.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, allegedly in this meeting, you say something like, so what's it going to take to bring you to WCW and Brett says, I would want the same contract as Hulk Hogan plus one penny. And he would classify your response as flabbergasted. And he says, you said something like, I can't do a deal, anything like that. Not right now. And he sort of dismisses it and says, well, that's fine. I'm not really looking to go anywhere. And you persisted. Come on, at least give me something I can go back to my people with anything and Brett says he thought for a minute and he says, I think about coming to work for you guys for 3 million a year and a lighter schedule. And allegedly you say, Hey, let me take this home to the Turner folks in Atlanta. And, uh, then you guys just got right back to talking about gunfighters. Do you remember how all of that happened and him throwing out $3 million a year, which feels like a really tall ask in 1996? It, it,
1: it It's insane. It's insane. And I think what happens, Conrad, I've, been, I've said this before, and I'm going to take my time and not blow through it. And I'm going to try real hard not to be too disrespectful to Brett because there's a lot of things about Brett I do respect. I respect the fact that he made a great living in a career and made a lot of money in a business that is excruciatingly difficult to to be successful in. Whether I like him or not, whether I think he's the greatest performer in the world or a mid-card jabroni, it doesn't matter. I still respect him for what he's accomplished. And the fact that, you know, it's a family legacy. And, and, and out of that respect, I'm going to be – I'm going to try my best, my very freaking best, to be careful about what I say. Now – my experience, especially after listening to other podcasts and doing interviews over the last couple of years, and some sometimes it's you know it's about people that I know and like and I'm still friends with, but I think what happens to guys is they tell the same stories year after year after year after year in interviews or whatever. And they suddenly start embellishing those stories a little bit every time until they get to the point after five or 10 or more years, they actually believe the version of the story that they're now telling. And there is such a small grain of truth to that version of how that meeting went. There may and I put I'm going to I'm going to give Brett the benefit of the doubt out of that respect that I just described. There may have been a, hey, what would it take for you to come here? Offhanded kind of almost joking co- comment, maybe to feel him out. But there's no way he threw out a three million dollar figure. And if had he, I would have, you know, happy to have paid for his beer and had a good joke and continued talking. But I can tell you it didn't happen. It absolutely didn't happen in his mind. It probably did because he wants to believe that, but it did not happen.
0: Well, all right. Um, Let's clarify here. Brett says you called back two days later with an offer of 2.8 million for three years. You're saying that didn't happen either. No, I think what's happening, you know, and
1: however Brett remembers this, or possibly doesn't really remember it, you know, I think he's conflating two different scenarios. A meeting in 96 that was nothing more than a, hey, let's meet face-to-face, see how we get along. And if that goes well, maybe down the road we'll have a conversation about a deal. I think what Brett has done in his own mind is conflate that with what we did talk about in 97. And all of a sudden now they're one in the same in his mind, they've completely merged and and it's just so convoluted. It's mind boggling.
0: Well, Brett goes in great detail in his book. And he says that, you know, once he got this $2.8 million offer from you for less dates, uh, he takes it to Vince and, uh, Vince says, Hey, he can't come close to matching it, but he would love to meet with him and present his idea. Because quote, WCW would never know what to do with a Bret Hart. And he asks for a few days to make a counter. And I've always just been fascinated by this because it just doesn't make any fucking sense. So I guess it makes a lot of sense now that you're sort of debunking it all. Uh, let's fast forward. October 9th, Vince would fly to Brett's house. They meet in his dining room. And this is where Brett got permission from Vince to do the Paul J documentary. And that movie, of course, would become Wrestling with Shadows. And I know a lot of people wonder how or why Vince would allow the filming backstage. Well, there's your answer. Brett had leverage when he asked Vince, or at least Vince thought so, because Eric's sort of denying it. At this meeting, Vince says that he has a better deal than WCW. Instead of a three-year deal worth nearly $9 bucks, he's going to offer him $10.5 million over 20 years. The breakdown is $1.5 million a year for the first three years as a wrestler and then half a million for the next seven years as one of his senior advisors and then a quarter million for the following 10 years almost as like an ambassador for the company and brett wrote in his book it was satisfying hearing him say i'll never give you a reason to ever want to leave and in the end brett just didn't think he could leave vince especially with his history with the company so he accepts the deal and they shake on it And nearly two weeks later, Brett is on raw in Fort Wayne for the first time in many, many months and announces he'll be returning to the company to take on Austin at survivor series. And he wrote in his book, I felt badly, but I had to keep Eric hanging until my deal with Vince was done. I regretted that I hadn't had a chance to call him and that Eric was about to find out that I just resigned with Vince along with the rest of the world. When I read this, I thought, man, that's pretty shitty of him to not communicate with you, but you're saying now. He wasn't, do- you weren't dodging his calls or he wasn't dodging your calls. You never made an offer. There was no cause.
1: And here's th- that whole excerpt that you just read to me. And I'm assuming, and you probably said it, um, came out book. of his book. That's right. right. Yeah. Okay. That just made him. Okay. Look at what that excerpt did in that book. It made him so freaking desirable. I was offering him more money than I was paying Hogan. That should be a flag to anybody with even a modicum, modicum of common sense right there. Number two, I didn't need him in 96. We were rolling in 96. We were rolling in 97. It wasn't like we were desperate. There was no reason for me to offer him the kind of money he's fabricating in his book that I offered him. And, and not only has he made himself Elvis – at that point, the highest paid commodity in sports entertainment slash professional wrestling by virtue of his memory of how this thing went down. He's also at the same time made himself a huge baby face by talking about how badly he felt for me. It's bullshit. It's just not
0: true. This is fascinating to me. It never did I imagine that we'd just be a couple of minutes into this thing and you would say, nope. Never happened because well,
1: that's- okay. Now, now, put your put your put a different hat on. You're a businessman and you're a very successful businessman, and you've been around this world now long enough to know how people work, how they think. Sure, okay. Barry Bloom sets up a meeting with Eric Bischoff and Bret Hart, knowing that it's going to get back to Vince McMahon, knowing that Bret is trying to negotiate a deal with Vince McMahon. Knowing that we're head-to-head, knowing that WCW is kicking Vin- Vince McMahon's ass, how, who benefits from that? Bret Hart. And Barry
0: Bloom. Sure.
1: You tell me, you tell me what really happened. Yeah, Brett, you, you, Barry Bloom set the media. This is my I don't have evidence. If I had to take if I had to prosecute this trial in a court of law, I probably couldn't bring enough hard evidence. But I'll tell you what I think. I think Barry Bloom being what I know Barry Bloom to be and the pattern that he's clearly established throughout the years, I am sure Barry Bloom wanted to set that meeting up and either knowing it was going to leak or intentionally leak it so that he could help negotiate a better deal for bret hart and put more money in his pocket that's what i think and now bret hart rather than admitting that he conned vince mcmahon and set this whole thing up as a work rather than admitting that which by the way i would respect him even more for if he did But rather than admitting that, he's conjuring up and conflating two separate meetings, not even two separate negotiations, because there was only really one negotiation. And that took place in 97, not in 96.
0: It's just fucking fascinating because he's not done. Brett wrote in his book. Eric was making every concession he could think of, including offering to have both Flair and Hogan call me to tell me themselves that they had no hard feelings about some less than complimentary things I'd said about them in past interviews, and that I'd be welcome to board. Even Hall and Nash agreed to waive their favorite nation's clause, which had guaranteed that no one in a similar position could be paid more than they were making just so I could come to WCW. And Mel- stop.
1: Stop. We got to hit full stop right there. There you go. That happened. There's the kernel of truth, you know, theory that I have. And, and again, more conflation and con- convolution. He's conflating two different th- two different periods of time. I did. Here we go. I did. I'll fall on this grenade. I did have to go to Scott and Kevin and I did have to get them to concede or to agree to waive a favored nations agreement because there was a version of a fit, not a complete favored nations. There was language in their agreements that addressed certain levels of talent and Brett would have fallen into that category. And I did have to go to both Scott and Kevin and get them to agree to waive that in order to bring Brett in in 19 fricking 97, not in 96. There was no con- there was no concessions of the sort in 96. He's either taken too many shots to the head or he had a ghostwriter write that book didn't didn't have a clue what he was really talking about. So one or the other. <laughs> things like that never bothered me. Right. And I know this is going to sound, you know, bizarre to people, but yeah. when I launched Nitro, one of the things that I felt the most strongly about was that it be live. Because I knew shit would happen just like that, that would make the show feel different. And it, it could be anything. It could be the light screw, the power going out in the middle of a mat. It could be anything, but it's what makes live television. And, I, and I'm going to really quit you know, dropping all the F-bombs, but I get excited and I drink all this mate tea and I get all jacked up and half the time you're pushing my buttons. So I'm going to blame it on you. Sure. but But... I used to tell in the very beginning, I, I, you know, I said to Brad Seagulls, why do you want to go live? It costs more money to go live than it does to do tape, which isn't really true, by the way, because there's no post-production on a live show. And post-production is what really can bog you down badly. But I, and I told Brad in the very beginning, fleas fucking live is interesting. Not everything that you watch on tape is really – because when you watch something live, you never you, – it's happening now. It's really happening and anything can happen. And that was the, the core vibe, if you will, that I wanted to establish in Nitro is that shit happens. Sometimes it's great shit. And sometimes it's like you just described. So for me personally, if I'd have been sitting back watching it on a, manor, a monitor, I would have busted out laughing. Vince McMahon might have killed somebody. But that's just, you know, the difference between the way we look at things. I think live TV should have flaws, just like a good character should have a flaw. But I would have laughed my ass off seeing that.
0: Let's talk about, uh, an incident he had with Scott Hall here. He wrote about it in his book and he says that really he had been a bit of a dick for a while and. Who's he, he? He Scott Hall. He says pronouns, pal pronouns. Thank you. You should have that down by now. Quote, it was no secret that hall enjoyed being a dick. And he said on more than one occasion, they pay me to wrestle, not to make friends. And it doesn't say anywhere in my contract that I have to be nice to anyone. This is the wrestling business, not the friendship business. Well, allegedly, uh, hall sort of badgering him one night and he gets sick of it and finally stands up for himself. And Hall says something like, you got something to say, Jericho, don't sing it, bring it. I'll put an end to your little Terry Taylor push. And Jericho says that pissed him off huge because he'd worked his ass off for that little Terry Taylor push. And he was be damned if somebody was going to mock him. Well, then Scott Norton comes over, looks him in the eye, him being Jericho and says, you better shut his mouth right now. Because if you don't stand up to him, I will. And you'll look like a pussy. So. Jericho goes and stands up and says, leave me the fuck alone. Next time you mess with me, I'm coming at you. understand? And hall looks at him in disbelief and says, I don't have a problem with you. dude. come on, man. Everything's cool. And he sort of says, this is just classic bully fashion and was typical of Scott hall. This is 98. Everybody knows you had your situations with hall. Is that about par for course for him in 98? Absolutely. That's a shame.
1: It is. It, it, it really is. And I can, I mean, again, as you describe that, you know, you're reading Chris's book, that's a scene that I can visualize as you're laying it out to me. It's almost like a movie I've seen a hundred times. It all came about during that period of time. Scott was a, Scott was a wreck and he would, he would push people's buttons and he could turn on a dime. I don't want to suggest that he was bipolar. I'm not a doctor uh, or a psychiatrist or psychologist, whatever it would be. But if he wasn't, he, he, he sure did a good imitation because one day he could just be the easiest guy in the world to get along with. And then 24 hours later, he would pull something exactly like you just described. It was not a good time.
0: Let's talk about fall brawl, 1998. This is where Jericho beat a fake Bill Goldberg in a minute and 15 seconds. This is directly from the observer. It was all comedy. First Jericho was walking around lost backstage, trying to get to the ring. Then Goldberg's music played and a guy who looked to be about five foot two came out, who I believe is either a Georgia indie wrestler who uses the name CC Develine or sometimes jobber Johnny attitude. And since he's just recently gotten his head shaved and got a Goldberg tattoo on his arm, this was perfect. Um, what do you remember about this? It, it's a, a half a star match. Of course, it's not supposed to be a real match, but Meltzer ranks everything here, the fake bill Goldberg match on pay-per-view. How does this come to be?
1: Yeah. I don't yeah, you, know, you ask me these questions all the time. You know, whose idea was that? How did that happen? The answer is I, I'm, it was a collaboration. It was probably a Chris Jericho idea that got to Kevin or Terry that probably got talked about, laid out. Then it was probably brought to me. And I probably went, "Ah, okay, it's consistent with 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 what Chris was doing. It was a parody. It was comedic. It was some smart ass shit. It was very, very consistent with a lot of the things that were working with Chris. So I wouldn't have seen any reason not to do it. However, I will tell you that it didn't go over all that well with Bill.
0: Yeah, that's what I wanted to get to.
1: Is, <laughs> it was the beginning. It was the beginning. I may not remember who's who stood up in a room and went, hey, uh, me, 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 me. Well, I got an idea. Let's do this. That I can't remember. Uh, but I do Terry remember Taylor. the reaction it got.
0: Before you get to the reaction, let me tell you, Chris wrote in his book that it was Terry Taylor who told him he'd be wrestling Goldberg. And at the time, he's TV champion. We should remind you that Goldberg here is, of course, the world champion. And when he finds out he's working Goldberg, he thinks it's strange that he's going to be in a three minute throwaway match like this on pay-per-view when he's the TV champion. But Terry explained, no, you're not facing the real Goldberg, but a quote unquote midget version of him instead. And he asked him why. And he said, no reason. I just thought you'd have some fun with it. So that was sort of the idea is WCW, at least Terry Taylor had sort of realized, Hey, we're doing comedy here. Let's double down on the comedy. But I get that in hindsight, maybe bill didn't see the humor and probably blamed Jericho for some of this. Tell us what Bill's reaction was to this uh Goldberg squash here for jericho he he was he was hot. he was hot
1: i mean i i I got an ear full and a face full. <laughs> I mean, he was in my face. he was hot. And again, you know, it's easy to talk about this stuff twenty odd years later, but at that time, remember, again, put it in context, how green Bill Goldberg was. Right. At that time, Bill came into a shark tank. Right. And he, he got over, other than The Rock, you know, or, or yeah, other than The Rock, nobody's gotten over as fast, as big as Bill Goldberg at that time. And it was a lot for him. He didn't have a decade you know, or more's worth of wrestling political experience. He didn't have a comfort level with the formula and and could predict how the audience would take things. Um, So he was really easily tipped over, especially when you had guys who were fucking with him. When you had a Scott Hall in his ear going, Bro, I don't know why they're, man, I wouldn't let them do that to me. And I'm not saying Scott did that, but that type of thing was very typical. Or any number of other people that were in his ear and influencing him because he, was, he didn't have his own basis of knowledge and experience to rely upon. Or Hulk Hogan would have pulled him aside. And if Hulk would have pulled him aside and said, Hey, Bill, just telling you. I would have never let them do something like that to Hulk Hogan. When Hulk Hogan was first getting over that, something like that would make bill go up in flames. So you can imagine how bill reacted to that.
0: And he reacted the next day in Greenville, South Carolina. He says he saw Jericho wrote, I saw Goldberg in the backstage area. He came up to me with fire in his eyes and a defiant grin and said, well, Jericho, I hope it was worth it. He asked what he meant. And he says, people have been calling me all day and laughing at me. Well, I don't do the comedy bullshit that you do. And I just want you to know you're going to pay the price for it. And Jericho wrote that he's sort of surprised by this. I mean, they both loved hockey. They went to a a hockey game together. He thought they got along and he thought he would have gotten a kick out of it. But he says, quote, as a result of the backstage vultures that were clouding his brain with manipulation, drooling at the thought of being one to end his streak. Here we are. He says, I just work here, Bill. I wish I had the power to book matches, but I don't. And he sort of stomps off Goldberg does and says, I hope it was worth it. And of course, Jericho is now going to keep this angle going, whether it's his idea or WCWs. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but he's bragging in the ring that night on the show that Jericho won Goldberg zero and challenges into a match. Of course, Goldberg doesn't answer so he wins by countout and starts saying Goldberg zero Jericho two, and he's no longer calling him Goldberg. He's calling him Greenberg and saying things like "Who's your daddy, Greenberg? Who's your daddy?" And people are really ready for a match here, but it doesn't happen. And he runs into Goldberg at uh, an airport, and Goldberg demands he stop doing the angle. "Quote: I don't do comedy." and he tried to explain that he's not going to do it and the fans are digging it and he doesn't want to really pull back and wcw allegedly is okay with this and they're even advertising goldberg versus jericho on the september 28th nitro and goldberg's there and just lays waste to the jericho security force and we're sort of not really getting the payoff we imagined with there being some sort of a pay-per-view build or whatever what's your relationship like with dealing with goldberg through this process is he sort of pushing back on all this did you have to talk him off the ledge a few times what can you tell us
1: yes i had to talk him off the ledge a lot and the relationship between bill and i had had been getting strained up to that point and again it's because the stakes were getting higher there were more people in Bill's ear. He was getting less and less secure because he went out now and, and instead of just going out and eating people, there was more and more story, you know, being suggested to him from time to time. It was a very tough time for Bill. It it just it was. And now to have this kind of thing happening, I mean, I think anybody else that had been in the business for five or ten years, I mean, it's Chris was getting him over. Right. I mean, he really was. Chris was doing him a favor. And so it was WCW. but Bill didn't have the experience to see it that way. His perspective was all fucked up. and it would he would get absolutely impossible to be around.
0: Now of course the match is going to happen, and Jericho wrote in his book that you're the one who breaks the news to him. and when he says, "What's the story for the match going to be, you said something like story. The same story Goldberg always tells. He beats you and pins you with the jackhammer in about three minutes. And Jericho says he thought he'd entered the twilight zone. Like the previous six weeks of angles hadn't happened. And he says, what about our angle? The fans are really into it. And you allegedly said there never was an angle. And if there was, it ends tonight. And he's sort of just taken aback by this, that this can't be real, that they've just thrown away all of this, that he felt like was really strong work. But that's the plan. On October 8th, um, there's a, a segment on Thunder where backstage Jericho's slamming on Goldberg's door. Goldberg's not there. And it's announced as if Jericho's going to take on Goldberg later in the show. And Jericho does an interview with, of course, his bodyguard and Tony Schiavone. And then he tells the referee Mark Curtis to get well. And he calls out Goldberg Goldberg's music plays, but he never shows up. And Jericho has the referee, put his hand in that in the air and ring the bell as if he were the winner. I mean, it is sort of weird that, you know, the match happens, it's a squash it's over really before it gets started, but he still continues the angle. Even after, is this just too many chefs in the kitchen? How does this thing piss off one of the top talents, but yet we're still playing with it a little bit. And we're not well, there's no there, there's
1: there, there's a layer of complexity that wasn't revealed in that book. Um, and we touched on it. You know, Chris Jericho was a heel. He was playing a heel. It was a cool heel and it was an entertaining heel, just like the NWO was in some respects, sometimes in many respects. But he was still a heel. Bill Goldberg was still Bill Goldberg at that point. There was no way that match was going to end any other way. Then the heel, poking the bear, getting his heat, poking the bear next week, getting more heat, and continuing to get that heat until the bear finally met him in the ring and the heel got beat. Right. That's the formula. Sure. Chris didn't want to do that formula. Chris didn't see it that way. And it became became an issue. Well, Chris, wa- Chris, Chris wanted a legitimate angle, not a comedic angle, not the one that you just laid out to me. He wanted to be figured in with, with Bill Goldberg in particular at that time. And it, we weren't ready for that yet.
0: Meltzer would even put in here that Goldberg had nixed the idea, even after all the angles that had sort of started it, because he just didn't want to do anything with Jericho And Meltzer would freestyle that Jericho was offered a program with Kidman, but Jericho, Guerrero, and Benoit Malenko were all trying to move away from the cruiserweight division because they didn't want that stigma. And they were putting pressure on guys to sign contracts. This is all directly from the Observer. Do you remember, you know, being like, hey, sorry, you can't work with Goldberg, but what about Kidman? No, I don't remember that. All right, Eric, we need to take a timeout here to remind everybody if you're constantly on the go grinding away at the office or hanging out with your friends there's just not much time to think about upgrading your style or apartment and that's why i love getting a new box of awesome from bespoke post every month these guys are out scouting for quality and unique products to send in each box and now you can experience it too at boxofawesome.com and eric you and i both got a box of awesome we did and i'll tell you for me because as Many of our listeners know I live in the middle
1: of nowhere. And when I say nowhere, I mean the nearest mall, decent mall, is probably Denver, which is a day's drive away. So when you live in a place like we do, and we love living here, but shopping, not always very handy. And when you do get to shop, you don't normally find the really cool stuff box of awesome it shows up at my house my house is decorated i actually look like i know what i'm doing with all the cool stuff i have sitting behind my bar
0: well, there you go uh, to get started just visit boxofawesome.com and answer a few short questions and you'll get a feel for the type of boxes that best go with your style whether you're in the search for the perfect drink or a well-kept pad or just jet setting and style Bespoke Post helps you improve your life one box at a time. Now, here's the deal. Each box goes for under 50 bucks, but it has more than $70 worth of stuff inside. this is cool, unique gear just waiting for you. The first of each month, you'll receive an email with your box details. And then from there, you've got five days to change all your colors and sizes or even add extra goods to your box. But if you're not feeling that month's box, well, they simply keep it. From barrel-aging kits to limited-edition cigars, weekender bags to classy dop kits, Bespoke Post offers essential goods and guidance for the modern man. So to receive 20% off your subscription box, do us a favor. Go to boxofawesome.com and enter our promo code, 83weeks, at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, and that promo code, 83weeks, will get you 20% off your very first box. Bespoke Post themed boxes for guys who give a damn.
1: Or you had other people that thought they were going to get cut because all the money had to go to Hogan. It was one of two camps. But Brian was very proactive and very constructive in his approach to it. And this is where he and I started talking, at least initially, in the very beginning, about what to do with his character and how we could utilize him in a different way.
0: Well, it would be written here that The, the person who sort of puts this bug in his ear to be this, what would, I guess we'll call the loose cannon character is Kim Wood who helped Brian get into wrestling and encouraged him to do so. And he was always fascinated that the road warriors tried to, you know, still be in character as much as they could. And bruiser Brody is probably the embodiment of that, where a lot of people thought bruiser behind the scenes was bruiser in front of the camera as well. I mean, that became the edict quote. The idea became to con the con man, fuck the fuckers. Uh, the thing that Arthur Jones taught me is that I taught Brian and that I taught Brian is that nobody's easier to con than a con man. And the idea here is to throw enough of the other wrestlers and the boys off with this quote unquote, bizarre behavior that people are going to start to wonder, has he himself gone nuts now, this is what I've been itching to talk to you about, of course, because we're going to get into the, the silliness of what's about to happen. But before we do, there's something written in the book here specific to you. I don't know if you saw it in the notes, but I can't wait to ask you about it. Brian had told Kim about how Eric Bischoff had photos of himself as a kickboxer on the walls of his office. He explained how when wrestlers would go in to talk with Eric for contract negotiations, Bischoff would take out his false teeth, put them on a plate that sat on his desk and crack his knuckles before starting the conversation. This not so subtle gesture was to indicate that while they were there to talk business, he was the boss and willing to fight. If things weren't going to his liking, the book, also oh says my God. whether Bischoff was legitimately a tough guy or not is completely irrelevant. The point was that he went out of his way to project that he was,
1: Oh my God. Stop. Please don't say any more. Who, the, who was this guy that wrote this?
0: Well, you said you didn't want me to tell you his name, but Crazy Like a Fox is the name of the book. And all right, this,
1: okay. So, whoever this jackass is, that is so absurd. Fucking absurd. Number one, I haven't had, I, I have never had a picture of myself doing martial arts on my wall anywhere. Ever I, I really in any home, in any office, or in fact, I don't even have a picture of myself doing martial arts. Anywhere. I don't this, even have one in a fucking storage unit.
0: This is like you telling me there's no Santa Claus. All right. Can we just go with this? I need No, okay.
1: I'm not doing it, man, because this is the kind of and this is why Dave Meltzer nominated this for the best book of 2017. Here's another fact. Okay, I'm just gonna hit you with facts. Number one, I have not ever owned a picture of myself competing in martial arts. Ever. Occasionally, Sonny Ono will send me something digitally on Twitter or on Facebook that he finds in his basement. And I look at it and I laugh and that's it. I may have posted one on Twitter several years ago as a throwback Thursday moment because I look like a fucking idiot putting a headband on like the Karate Kid. And I thought it was comical. That's it. So there were no pictures on my fucking wall in my office. Other than the ones that were there when I got the office. That's number one. Number two, the whole took his teeth out, sat back, and cracked his knuckles to try to intimidate wrestlers. Are you fucking kidding me? Number one, it started with kind of a joke that dated back to probably 1992 or early three when I got invited to a a Christmas party at Dusty and Michelle's house and I had way too much to drink. And as a joke, I used to have my two front three front teeth right in the very front of my, my teeth got knocked out and I had what they call a flipper plate at that time. And what that meant was I could very easily, I could just wipe my hand very quickly in front of my mouth. I could flip that plate out of my mouth into my hand And smile and there'd be a gaping hole in in my, in my teeth. And then I could very quickly, almost like a magician, wipe my hand right in front of my face and the teeth would be there again. And I would put out a big smile and he used to freak Dusty out. He laughed his ass off. I did it at a Christmas party. So everybody knew that I had a partial plate in, 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 in my, in my mouth. So there's a kernel of truth. Eric did have false teeth that was attached to a, a flipper plate at one point in his life. However, by the time in the period we're talking about right now, I had a permanent fucking bridge in place. So even if I was dumb enough or inclined through weakness of character to try to intimidate people by making them look at pictures of myself. Competing in a martial arts tournament or a kickboxing tournament, and sitting back in my deck and cracking my knuckles and taking my teeth out of my mouth and putting them on a plate—it would have been physically fucking impossible. God damn! Was making two hundred grand a year at that time. Had good dental work. That's the kind of shit that just drives me nuts, Conrad. Not mad. i actually right now. This is so funny. I, I just.
0: Wait, hang on. I don't, I don't I know how to I, react. If you're not mad, I think I can fix it. Let me keep going. <laughs> when somebody is telling you they're a tough guy, they're sending you a red flag that they can be fucked with. And we knew Bischoff was a mark for himself. Wood said he told Brian, get tight with this guy Bischoff and make him part of it. Let him be an insider. He'll be so thrilled to death that you're pulling this rib on the boys together. So he's exploiting the fact that you're a mark for yourself. Because you have pictures of yourself and your karate gi and you, uh, report yourself to be a badass. Never so happened. so never happened since that's not how you got conned. How'd you get conned? I didn't get conned. Okay. Let's hear it. Cause the story we've all heard is that you guys decide to work the boys and you wind up working yourself into a bigger contract negotiation and lose a big star. And you're going to say, that's not what happened. So take over.
1: Okay. The idea, and I don't know if it was Sullivan or Brian that came to me first with the idea of the loose cannon character, as would be later defined as the loose cannon character. But Brian and I had had conversations about shit that he could do ways that he could contribute you know what what we could do to make him worth the kind of money that that he needed and i was honest with brian there wasn't i couldn't get him to 4 or 500 grand a year whatever he was asking for at the time there was just no way i could i couldn't double his money there was no rational logical justifiable way that i could go to the people that i had the answer to despite the atm, ATM eric narrative there was just no way i could Go to someone and say, "Look, I'm going to take a guy at 225. I'm going to bump him up to 500. Why? Because mm. I like him." That wasn't that wasn't in my toolbox. And Brian was smart enough to see what was going on w- with Hulk, and some of the people that were coming in. We were crowded. It was it, we still <laughs> we still had a pretty deep roster even at that time. And that's when we first started talking about. You know, Brian came to me and said, what if, what if I go work somewhere else? What if I, what if I get myself over in WWF? What if we find out a creative way for me to go spend a year or two years and get myself over somewhere else and then come back at that kind of a rate? And that made sense to me. I liked Brian. We had a great working relationship. We stayed in touch the whole time that he was gone because he did want to come back. So there was a discussion about the crazy fucking insane Booker man character. And Kevin was a part of that. Kevin Sullivan was a part of that. And Brian and I did talk about him going eventually to WWF and trying to make a name for himself and come back here or come back to WCW.
0: So the plan was let him go and come back. Not necessarily in terms of, I mean, you didn't have a real timetable for this. But he wanted to make more money than what you could get him. And if he could so, sort of, as Jim Ross would say, go learn a new hold, then maybe you could justify you know, him with a new value if he had some shine somewhere else. Yep. So the plan all along, from your perspective, was that he was going to wind up working for someone else. Now, did you think that that someone else would just be ECW and that's the reason you allowed the date? Or, I mean, because you're in the middle of this quote-unquote Monday Night War would you have been so
1: I he mean, told me he told me he had the shot to go to w w f and I told him to go
0: okay all right so you you realize the narrative on this has been for more than twenty years that you were a dumbass that got worked of course uh, why have you not actively corrected that well <laughs> because he passed away
1: <laughs> no because I've not had a platform uh because it hasn't been a question that has come to me in any of the, you know, hundreds or thousands of interviews that I've done over the years. Nobody's really, you know, gotten into the kind of detail that we are here. But it's it's typical of the kind of bullshit that's been floating around out there for years. Brian and I stayed in contact the whole time that he was in WWF. Let's see what he wanted he wanted to make sure that he could make his way back to WCW. That was his goal. No, Was he working me and just calling me when he was out on the road and maintaining a good relationship and checking in with me? Yeah, maybe, but I knew he was going to WWF and we maintained a good relationship while he was there.
0: So what you're saying is Brian has really put himself over to seem like he was really more important to WCW than what you really valued him at, because you would have never pulled this shit with a Kevin Nash or a Scott Hall, right? No.
1: And I remember exactly where I was when I got a phone call from Hulk Hogan, and it was probably in August or September of uh, 94. I was walking through the airport in Detroit. I was connecting onto another flight. Uh, I think I was either coming back from a show or I was on business doing something. But I was in Detroit, and I had like a two-hour layover. And I got a phone call from Hall. He said, what do you think of Randy Savage? I said, well, he's a hell of a performer. I said, would you want to talk to him? He said, well, sure. He said, here, hold on. <laughs> I went, Whoa. I thought he meant, do you want me to set you up with a phone call or right. introduce you or do you want his phone number? He said, hey, brother. <laughs> I went, Whoa. Fuck. And I wasn't ready for that, but hey, Randy, how are you? Good to talk to you. And it was really it was a short conversation because we neither he nor I know Randy was you know if you know you, you know of Randy. I, did you ever meet Randy
0: Conrad? No, I did not.
1: Well, Randy could be I hate to use the word paranoid because it kind of overstates it, but he was very, very careful particularly with people that he didn't know or even people that he knew but didn't quite trust. And, and I don't blame him for that, you know, especially, you know, the wrestling business kind of creates that character trait. But, so Randy was very friendly, but I knew, you know, we weren't going to get into a conversation about coming over. It was just, hey, are you good to talk to you? You're in good things, brother. You know, that kind of thing. L- letting me know that he'd be interested if I was is really the the tone of the
0: conversation.
1: And then uh, Hulk got back on and we talked a little bit and he said, you want to, you want to follow this up? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm on my way home. Give him my number. And, and that's how that started.
0: So you guys started dialogue and, you know, you've written a lot about this and talked about this a lot before, you know, Savage is saying that he's not very happy with what he's doing And he wasn't ready to sort of hang up the tights and put on a suit. And he hears that that's really the plan. I think McMahon had a meeting with him and said, you know, I'm, I'm making a switch. I'm going to the youth movement, which is sort of the same thing. He said to flair a couple of years prior that brought flair back to WCW. What did Randy express about all of that to you? And I guess we should, we should mention that when, when Vince tells him this, Randy, I believe is 42 years old. And I know sometimes people say, oh, well, that's old. AJ Styles is 41. It, age is a f- weird thing. I just wanted to put all that in context. So what did Randy express to you about his situation with McMahon and, and what he hoped to do differently with you if there was an opportunity?
1: I mean, he was hot about it. He, he, I mean, he was, he was very clear that he, did, he didn't see himself as a color commentator. He was insulted quite frankly. And look, Randy was an athlete long before he got into professional wrestling. You know, we, we talk, you know, sometimes we joke about it, sometimes we talk in depth about it. But, you know, the one thing that I think everybody that knew, worked with, was anyway associated with Randy would agree upon, um, if you could only pick one word to describe Randy Savage, what would it be? And I would bet you 80% of the people would agree on intense. He was just such an intense and I don't, I mean, it, with himself, he, he was competitive with himself. Um, he, he kept raising the bar for himself in every possible way that, that he could think of. Um, so when he got the word, and this is the way he articulated it to me. All right. Obviously, I wasn't there. I'm not that rumor and innuendo guy. I don't repeat second and third hand shit. But as it was articulated to me, um, he was pissed off about it. He didn't like being in the booth. He thought he had at least five or 10 years left in him and he believed in himself. He believed that he could still draw major money and he wasn't shy about saying it. He, he had a lot of confidence. So, um, when and he, and he told me that Vince told him that, you know, he's, he's putting him out to pasture. He's going to put him behind the booth and just snapped. you know, when Randy Savage looked at himself in the mirror, 42 years old, um, And those of us who have passed that mark, you know, realize that, you know, as you get older, you, yeah, your driver's license says you're 42 or you're 52, or in my case, 62. And you you know that, yeah, you can can add, you you can do the math. But when you look in the mirror, you don't feel that. You know, at least I don't. Most people don't. You know, and I'm sure when Randy Savage, giving his intensity and the level of competitiveness that was just part of his DNA, when Randy Savage looked in the mirror at 42 years old and Vince McMahon was telling him he was too old to work, you know, that didn't go over well at all. He was hot about it.
0: And you were what, a few years younger than him at the time?
1: Uh, this would have been 94, so yeah, I would have been 40
0: probably. So you're having a conversation about him wrestling what does that conversation sound like? Are you guys talking about, you know, the number of dates and, uh, you know, the particulars about the financial end, or is it more about, you know, what would you do with me, brother?
1: No, he, you know, Randy, we talked a little bit about this on, um, Patreon yesterday, because I got a couple of really good questions from some of our patrons over there about Randy. And Randy could be really difficult and challenging because he was intense and because he was borderline paranoid, you know, if not probably clinically paranoid in some cases. Uh, and that made it really hard until you, until he trusted you. Now, later on in our relationship, I had no problems with Randy. Randy was one of the easiest, you know, major talents um, there was for me to work with. I mean, we trusted each other completely. He, he didn't doubt me, but in the beginning, I didn't, I didn't have that relationship. So it, it was a little more challenging. But when it came to, um, he didn't have the dates issue. You know, he wanted to know, he was aware, you know, but he knew we were only doing 180 dates a year. You know, he, at the time he came in, we probably weren't even doing that. Because right. we, we had cut the guts out of the house show schedule because they were losing money so badly, it didn't make any sense to do any more than, you know, necessary. So, you know, he, he, he wasn't concerned about, you know, being on the road 325 days a year. In fact, he probably would have enjoyed that more, quite honestly, at the time. Um, he, he was like Hulk and others who came in from WWF. You know, they, they looked at WCW as weak when it came to creative. W, WCW did not have a reputation for having, you know, a great idea on how to use a lot of people. So he was a little concerned about that, uh, more than a little concerned. And we did talk about that issue, and he, he was concerned about how he was going to be used. But he also knew that Hulk was there. Hulk and Randy were tight. Hulk was the reason that Randy got his foot in the door. Not that he, you know, if Randy would have called me on his own, he would have got there too. Sure. But the fact is, you know, Hulk and Randy had a history Rocky one sometimes, but they had a history. And at that precise moment, you know, they had a good relationship. And I think Hulk was excited about Randy being there because Hulk knew that that was someone that, you know, he could draw money with. Randy was excited because Randy knew he could draw money with Hulk or believed he could. So I think Randy coming over knew that he was going to be at the top of the food chain, creatively speaking, uh, right off the bat. So that wasn't too big of an issue. Most of it was just. He wanted assurances that he was going to be featured. Um, he was going to end up the same way he was ending up in WWF, being put out to pasture. I think he was concerned a little bit about the longevity of his deal. He didn't want to come in and just hot shot it and you know, be shown the door. Those were some of the issues. But honestly, uh, looking back at it, I, I think it was probably one of the easier deals. I, in fact, I know it was for a lot of other reasons. Namely Slim Jim, but it was one of the easier deals I've ever put together. His first one.
0: Well, we'll talk about uh, Slim Jim in a minute, but let's talk about the Hulk Hogan thing, because I think, and you sort of alluded to it there. A a lot of fans know that there's been a rocky relationship and sometimes it was. You know, storyline and they didn't get along on camera, but. A lot of times they had issues behind the scenes had. Hogan expressed any of that to you prior to you having the conversation and did it come up in your conversation with macho? Did he need any sort of reassurances about your relationship with Hogan or how that may affect him?
1: No, I knew, you know, because by, by the time, you know, Randy made it in, I had gotten to know Hulk pretty well and had spent some time with him, not only working, but you know had gone down to Florida and, you know, in an effort to kind of get to know him and, build a better relationship with one of our top stars, um, we got into more social kind of conversations uh, as opposed to just pure business. And, you know, he, he would tell me stories. You know, Hulk is a great storyteller. Um, I wish we could get him to do a podcast with us at least once a month because he's a phenomenal storyteller with great recall when it comes to wrestling events. When it comes to what he did yesterday, um, forget about it but when, when it's wrestling and he's got a phenomenal recall, much like Bruce Pritchard in a way. Um, but, you yeah, know, Randy or Hulk would tell me, you know, about some of the crazy shit, you know, that he and Randy went through. And he walked me through a lot of the ups and the downs and the, the jealousy with Liz and all of the drama and, you know, Liz and, you know, Terry's ex-wife, Linda. I mean, I, yeah, I heard it all before I met Randy. Ironically, or interestingly, when randy came in he didn't have a bad word to say about it. he didn't imply he didn't suggest he didn't he didn't show his cards in any way shape or form with regard to having any concern about you know working with hawker their their previous relationship he was he was a real pro about that
0: is it fair to say that the bulk of the issues between hogan and randy in one way or another involved elizabeth
1: you know, I think, Liz, again, now this is just me as a fan, right? And, and I guess a fairly uh, a spectator with good proximity. Um, I, I think Liz was probably, in some respects, a catalyst for some of the issues. But the issues were really Randy's – Randy had a desire to be completely in control of his situation and probably you know i didn't hang out with randy a lot uh, personally i mean i I went down to his condo we hung out a couple times and we did some things socially and we took a trip or two together uh short ones um but you know i I got to know him towards the end i got to know him fairly well socially as a person but i think from a business point of view and, and by the way before i go on Randy, when, he, when he, you got to know – I'm just going to speak for myself. When I got to know Randy and he and I kind of passed the threshold of just business and me being the guy running the company and him being a top talent, when we actually kind of passed that threshold and became friends, friendlier, um, he was a very relaxed guy to be around. When you caught him in his environment, when I first, I remember the first time I went down to us, he had a condo, I think it was in Indian Rocks Beach, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. And I went down and it wasn't about business. I was just, I was going to be in town anyway. He was there and you know, he he invited me down. And Randy was a little bit of a recluse. You know, he wasn't a big social animal. You know, Hulk will go out and, you know, he'll walk through Clearwater Beach and he'll be signing autographs on his way to a steakhouse. And, you know, Hulk is like a walking, talking human billboard wherever he goes. Randy was a little bit more uh, reclusive. So when Randy said, hey, brother, why don't you're going to be in town? Why don't you swing by? Here's my address. So I did. And like I said, we didn't have any business to talk about. But I remember the first time I walked into his house, there was such a dramatic difference between Randy Savage in his home and Randy Savage in the arena. The the Randy Savage in his own home was relaxed. He was chill. You know, he was super friendly. Uh, and and late, I mean, he was just he was just a completely different person. Uh, when he got to the building, you know, when it was business, it's like he had on his he had on a coat of psychological armor, you know? I mean, he was just, his eyes were constantly, you know, he's looking around, he's he's listening to every word, he's trying to read people and trying to, to read into, you know, what they're saying based on the way they're carrying their body language. And I mean, he was just so intense that way that they, was, they were dramatically two different people. Um, and I don't know why I went off on that fucking tangent, but.
0: There you go. Let's talk a little bit about Scott Hall. It's said here that uh, he's getting in a little bit of hot water with a lot of different folks. And even Mike Mooneyham would report in the newspaper that he tried to play a bit of a practical joke on some of the luchadors. Staggers out of the hotel bar and just rams into their rental car thinking it's funny. Hooventoo and a lot of the other guys try to confront him and ask him to pay for it. And things just continue to spiral to the point where he's probably going to be missing some action here. You have to step in. And where are we at with Scott Hall and some of his out of the ring antics here in the fall of
1: 1998? Yeah, definitely getting out of control. And I don't recall when Scott actually first went into rehab, but he was spinning so far out of control at this point. And this is one thing I want to point out right away. And, and, you know, a couple hours ago, sitting back and watching this event, there were some things, you know, that I was pretty proud of in a way, despite the overall quality of this show. There were some things that I was – I'm embarrassed about, and I just want to get it out of the way right now. Putting Scott Hall out there and using his addiction as the basis or the premise for a storyline – is something that I really, really, really regret. And I don't regret much. There's only a couple things in my career that I've regretted. You know, one was the way I handled Ric Flair. And probably this. The rest of it, you know, I look back out and go, you know what, I did the best I could and I learned as I went and whatever. I, I just don't regret much. But I, as, watching this today, I really regret it. I just, I felt, I felt shitty about myself watching this because you don't, you don't do that. You know, you don't glorify, you don't exploit, you, you, you just don't do that. And I did that.
0: Was it your idea? Who pitched it yes,
1: to it Yes. It was my idea. And that's why I feel shitty about it. It was my idea. It wasn't Scott's idea. It wasn't, you know, Harvey Schiller didn't call me and say, Hey, why don't you do this? You know, it wasn't Hulk Hogan's idea. It wasn't Kevin Sullivan's idea. It was my idea. It was me doing what had worked to a degree in some situations where you take a reality, Hall and Nash, leaving WCW, becoming big stars, coming back, flipping the car over at WCW and trying to make everybody pay for it. Th- that worked. You know, taking reality and tilting it five or ten degrees and turning it into a a fictional storyline was a formula that was working. You know, my issues with Ric Flair, that was a reality and we tilted it a couple degrees and put a little bit of salt and pepper on it. And it became a great storyline and it worked. So there was a reason in my mind, at least incorrectly, not justifying it. That okay, we've got this problem with Scott. Why don't we try to make that a storyline? Because everybody knew about it. There was no secret. The audience, you know, dirt sheets did a great job of exploiting it for clickbait and reporting on it. And I'm not necessarily, you know, clickbait's not not fair. That's something that should have been reported. And I don't, I don't, I'm not blaming anybody for reporting it. But like unfortunately i took that and went okay let's let's take a negative and try to turn it into a positive positive." and in this case that that was a really really bad choice
0: so let's talk a little bit about um what that means for scott hall because allegedly the main event for halloween havoc is a bit up in the air it's been speculated in the dirt sheets at the time that the idea is Kevin Nash versus Goldberg at Halloween Havoc. And we know that's not what's going to wind up happening. It does wind up becoming a Diamond Dallas Page Goldberg match. What else was discussed that you remember for Halloween Havoc? Did you know going in to, you know, the weeks leading into this fall brawl where you wanted Halloween Havoc to be Goldberg wise?
1: Yes. Otherwise we wouldn't have put, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a spontaneous decision to put page over it was probably a spontaneous decision as to how we put him over. But clearly, you know, Bill had been, you know, he had been growing as a character and he had been eating his way through the food chain. And it was now to the point where we had to start feeding him for lack of a better way of saying it, no disrespect to page or anybody else, but we had to start feeding him now credible opponents as he was, As they, the credible opponents were working up in terms of stature and and page was at that point, a really viable character that people could have to a degree believed in. It wasn't a squash by any stretch. Um, so yeah, we knew going in that it wasn't spontaneous.
0: Of course, you don't just have situations with Scott Hall and drug tests and injuries. You've also got behind the scenes office maneuvering, and we've never really talked about this or not in detail. Janie Engel blindsides you and tries to resign and you attempt to mend the, mend those fences a little bit, not just with her, but with everybody else. But there's also a report that maybe there was a power play from Nick Lambros that resulted in Lambros being out of WCW and now starting to work on another project for Turner. Chat me up about Engel and Lambrose and sort of what went sideways here in the summer of 98.
1: Well, there was no connection there at all. Let's first talk about um, Janie. And yeah, she did. Now, again, I'm going to back up for just a second. This is where, again, I really hope that people that are listening to this spend the time and the money reading the Guy Evans Nitro book, because unless you read that, Unless you hear the stories from someone's perspective other than mine, it's a little hard to believe. And I can understand why people would hear me talking about this and think that I'm just, you know, fading the heat or making excuses. But this was about the time when, from an internal political point of view, it was was getting ugly. You, you didn't see it on camera. The talent wasn't aware of it. Chris Jericho, Bill Goldberg, you know, all the people that like to talk about what was going on in WCW at the time. They had no fucking clue what was really going on at WCW at the time. The only thing that they knew what was, is what was happening at Nitro when they showed up on Mondays or on the house shows. That they knew. But they never got near the epicenter of what was really going on then. And it was ugly. Internally, it was ugly. It was stressful. I was under a tremendous amount of stress, as was everybody else. And Janie was my rock. You know, Janie was Dusty Rhodes' rock. You know, Janie was Dusty's right hand person, right? And when I kind of ascended through the ranks, because I was close to Dusty and I was close to Janie, you know, even when I first started, there was a talent. We'd all drive together. It was me and Dusty and you know, most of the time, Janie and Doug Dillinger are, are the ones that would travel together. So as I kind of ascended through the ranks and I needed, you know, my right hand person, somebody that I could trust, that I knew was loyal, that would tell me the truth, that was um, impervious or immune, I guess, to the political manipulations and all the, 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 the games the talent would play. You know, Dixie, is, uh, D- D- Dixie, oh my God, Janie had seen it all. She was very experienced. She grew up in Texas, you know. She she came up at a very young age, you know, at a time, you know. She knew Terry Funk. She was a part of the whole, you know, beginning and end of the territory culture. So she she knew it. She was probably one of the smartest people, smart to the wrestling business people in all of WCW. When when I got the opportunity to to be in control, so she was naturally my executive assistant, executive secretary, and everything went through uh, Janie. I wouldn't take a meeting. I wouldn't take a phone call. Nothing happened unless it went through Janie. So, and she knew where the bodies were buried. (laughs) I mean, she knew it all, not just with me under my tenure, but, you know, she was around WCW from the beginning of WCW time when Turner took it over. So Dixie was, I keep calling her Dixie, and I'm so sorry for that. Janie was critical to everything that was going on in the office. She was kind of the central focus. And Jim Ross offered her a gig to come because Jim worked with her too. Jim knew Janie's value. No question about it because Jim worked as closely with Janie as I did, maybe closer over a longer period of time. So when Jim went to WWE and he made her an offer, it was, you know, number one, Janie – was exhausted mentally and emotionally, and I, I don't want to put words in her mouth, we've talked about it subsequently, obviously, but she was mentally and emotionally drained, not only by, by what was going on internally, but my by my reaction to it. I went from being pretty easy and fun, not not that I wasn't a challenge, even when things are going great, because I have a strong personality, and in a certain way of doing things, which is challenging for many people, but it never was a problem between Janie and I, she was a part of my family. She would babysit our kids. When Lori and I would want to go out of town, Janie would come over and, you know, my kids called her auntie Janie, you know, and, and she traveled with us. I mean, she was a part of our family. So when Jim Ross offered her a gig, between the amount of money they offered her they meaning WWF and the fact that she was so emotionally drained by what was going on internally politically and my reaction to it she she was she called me and told me she was she was going to go and she cried you know and i i was shocked i was very emotional about it i was devastated and just because like i said she felt like part of my family not just me, but my wife and my kid, Lori and Janie and a couple of the girls from the office and Liz, uh, you know, Liz would all come out to Wyoming and go trout fishing together in the fall. We still have pictures to this day of Liz and Janie and a couple of the other, other girls that worked in the office that would come out here to where we live now in Wyoming. And they'd have, you know, what they call them girls weekends, you know, once or twice a year. I mean, that's that's how much it hurt when I thought, you know, Janie was gonna leave. And I and I did make her a big offer. I, I paid her a lot of money, paid her six figures to stay. I and Harvey Schiller said, Eric, what are you doing? You know, that was probably thirty or forty percent more than you know what was normally expected to pay somebody like Janie. But Janie knew forty or fifty or seventy percent more about the business than anybody I could hire off the street. You can't train somebody to understand the wrestling business. Nobody's gonna come out of college with a master's degree in wrestling. You have to live it. You have to have gone through it in order to see it all or have at least some level of experience in dealing with the bizarre sets of circumstances that come your way as a result of wrestling. And then add on top of that, just organizational, being efficient, being all the things that any executive assistant would need to be, but to also have the knowledge as to how to handle the unique animal that is wrestling. She was worth every nickel of it. And we were able to keep her. Um, I was able to keep her, keep her as my assistant. I had to hire somebody to be her assistant because the workload was so heavy at that time. So I actually had two assistants, but um, the second one reported to Janie, not to me. Um, But yeah, it was, it was really tough on me. Nick Lambrose, the second part of the, the question, um, there was no issue with him leaving, but you know he and I, you know Nick was a great, great support system for me you know for a couple years. Uh, Nick, you know he worked for Turner Legal um, and he was assigned to WCW, but he took a particular interest in WCW that was different than most of the people from the legal department did. He, he was a, you know, some people, in uh, Conrad, you may have experienced this in your life. You know, I categorize lawyers, you know, in, in two categories, you know, ones, you know, some lawyers are deal makers and some lawyers are deal breakers yep in, in my business, at least in entertainment. And I would say 75% of the time they're deal breakers because they're looking for ways to fuck deals up. They're looking for reasons why a deal shouldn't happen, and that's the way they're trained, and the way they think, and the way they think they, they 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 create value. But there's a smaller percentage of lawyers that are deal makers that'll look at the same situation. You give the deal breakers and the deal makers the same legal challenge, and a smaller percentage of them will find a way to make it work, where the largest percentage of them will find a way to make sure it doesn't work because that's the way they're safe and they get paid either way. It doesn't matter. And Nick was one of those deal maker kind of attorneys. And I recognized it in him right away. And, and he was fun to be around. He had a great attitude. Um, so I ended up hiring him. He no longer reported to legal because he didn't represent Turner broadcasting or he didn't represent WCW necessarily in any kind of litigation or negotiations, but he was great in terms of being able to facilitate contracts and, you know, streamline the legal process so that when it got bumped up to turn Legal, it was pretty much bulletproof and it worked really well. The challenge with Nick and I is Nick, like a lot of people in 1998 started getting very political and started spending more time, Kind of wondering where he was going to land after the merger, then he was thinking about what was best for WCW, and I saw that. I saw the. I, I saw it. He went from being a team player, a hundred percent WCW, you know, do whatever needs to be done, let's make this thing work. To, I'm sorry, Eric, I got a golf game with somebody over here next on Thursday. I can't be in that meeting, and I started seeing that more and more and more and. That created a bit of an issue between Nick and I.
0: The next night on Nitro, Oakland is interviewing Flair and Arn Anderson, and he says he's fought for Roddy Piper for 12 years, but now he wants Piper to be his vice president. And six bagpipers lead Piper to the ring. And uh, I don't know, it feels kind of funny that you were fighting for the presidency the night before, and now uh, he's your VP. A week later, Oakland would, uh, introduce Flair and Piper. And of course they're coming out with Arn Anderson and Asia of all people. They're coming out to Piper's bagpipe music and, um, he's going to start taking some shots at Buff Bagwell and that eventually leads to Flair and Piper defeating Buff Bagwell and Dean Malenko in 10 minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, this is starting to, to sort of build towards a Buff Bagwell, Roddy Piper match at bash at the beach. Why was the decision made after having him work a couple of matches with Flair to then pivot to buff Bagwell? What's the thought process?
1: Cause I think we got as much out of him and Flair as we could get. I mean, the story we've just been telling, what is it? It's taken us through a year and a half. Yeah. And there's been a lot of Flair and Piper in the middle of all of that. At some point you have to pivot you can't keep telling different variations of the same story over and over and over and over again and
0: expecting it to work. Well, why is Buff the guy, though? Why is he chosen?
1: You know, Buff Buff gets a lot of heat because of things that he's done since this time. But, you know, in 97, in 98, he did have a great look. He, he could work in the ring. He, he, was, he was, you know, not the best worker on the roster, but he certainly could work. With just about anybody, and he, and he did have that character you wanted to see get his ass kicked. I mean, he did play a good heel role, you know, particularly at this time. So I, I don't think it should be that big of a stretch of imagination for a guy who is kind of coming up the ladder in Mark Bagwell to get an opportunity to work with an established babyface like Roddy Piper. I, I you know, I, I think that should be fairly obvious. What's the thinking or at least at least understandable.
0: What's the thinking in doing a boxing match and having Mills Lane as the referee? Of course Mills Lane is the famous referee that I think most people remember was the dude who was turned into claymation for MTV during the celebrity death matches and he's the referee who was there during the whole ear-biting scenario and there's just lots of famous Mills Lane boxing moments but He's here and he's a referee in a boxing match between Roddy Piper and buff Bagwell. Is this just, Hey, they did this at WrestleMania with Booker T let's do it again.
1: No, it's not that at all. It's Roddy, Roddy boxed, Roddy, you know, built his character. A lot of the promos that he's done over the years, you know, he would recount the days, you know, as a fighter, you know, one of the unique things about Roddy is he often referred to wrestling matches as fights. He talked about the number of fights that he had, not the number of matches that he had. So Roddy oftentimes kind of framed himself in in a character as kind of a a street fighter boxer. And this was something that Roddy felt that he could do um, more effectively than he could go out and have, you know, a Dave Meltzer, you know, five star, you know, Japanese match.
0: He gave it a half a star, and he says that, uh, by the way, I guess we should mention Buff won 34 seconds into the third round. Uh, Meltzer would say this was bad, but it could have been worse. Actually, Piper did a very good job of doing worked boxing, and Bagwell was also better than expected. Piper didn't even appear to tire at 48 years old with those big gloves. Bagwell tired, but not to the point that he couldn't perform. He gives it half a star, uh and that's really the the last big thing that Piper does with the company while you're there. You leave famously on September 9th, 1999. Did you keep in touch with Roddy after you left? What was the relationship like? Cuz he's still sticking around even after you're gone. You know, I'm you you
1: probably figured this out about me. I'm I'm not a very good phone friend. You know, I don't chat with anybody um as much as I love my son and my daughter. Um, I talked to my son today for the first time in two weeks for about 45 seconds. (laughs) Uh, My daughter I talk to once every, you know, couple weeks, unless I'm there, you know, and if I'm if I'm in L.A. like I was last week, then I'm I make I squeeze out every minute that I can spend with her. But when it comes to staying in touch on the phone, I'm probably one of the worst. I'm good on text. Send me a text. I'll respond to it 24 hours a day, usually, or even an email. But I'm just not the kind of guy that stays in touch with anybody by phone. But was what was really interesting with Roddy and I is Roddy still, you know, even during this period of time and, and even afterwards, Roddy spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, either um, auditioning or, you know, meeting with writers and producers and studios and networks and so forth. And so did I. Uh, there was a period of time from about mm, 2001, to about 2009 or 10 when I kept a full-time apartment over on the beach in Santa Monica because I worked so regularly in L.A. It was just easier to stay there and go home occasionally than it was to fly back and forth for meetings. So when I was in L.A. during that period of time, you know, L.A. is kind of a – Hollywood is kind of a small – really a small community. And a lot of the meetings you have are, you know, people use the same restaurants and the same, they'll go to the same bars for drinks after work and things like that where studio executives and writers and producers all kind of hang out. And I would, there were times, you know, I was over in Studio City in, you know, just outside of Burbank and I'd walk into a Mexican restaurant and there's Roddy sitting all by himself, you know, either before or after a meeting, grabbing a bite to eat. And that happened really frequently with Roddy. I I, I would imagine I ran into Roddy oh, oh, no. once every six weeks, just kind of spontaneously because just we happened to be in the same building or restaurant or bar or whatever. Uh, and we would sit, we would visit, and it was like, here's the thing I remember about Roddy, and I'm probably why I miss him. For I miss him for a lot of reasons. To me, I may have said this at the beginning of the show, Roddy was kind of a, in the most – complimentary way I can possibly imagine saying it. He was a throwback and I miss that. He, he represented an era of, of the business that very few people do anymore in a real and genuine way. And he, he lived it. He didn't just talk about it. A lot of people talk about it. Roddy lived it. And I miss that in him. I also missed his honesty Good, bad, or indifferent. He was always an honest kid. There was nothing. If Roddy said something to your face, you knew he believed it and he meant it, good or bad. There was never, you never had to read between the lines with Roddy. You never had to worry about Roddy saying one thing to your face and another thing behind your back. That was not Roddy Piper. And I really genuinely miss that character in People because it's so fucking rare in today's world People are just not conditioned to be that honest anymore. Um, I miss the passion that Roddy had for the business. And I would see that passion, again, not in what he said, but by what he did and the way he lit up like and I, again, I've, I know I've said this a couple of times on this podcast, it was like this childlike enthusiasm and his eyes would light up when he would get into a discussion about an idea or an angle or, or a finish or a moment in a match or an interview or anything else. He would light up in a way that very few people did or, or probably still do. Those are all of the things that I miss a, about Roddy Piper. But he, I'm I'm so grateful that I had a chance to work with him. And I remember, it was just a couple of years ago. Obviously, he passed away. And my wife and I were, Lori and I, we were on our Harley. We drove up to Bozeman and spent a little time trout fishing in Livingston, Montana. And we stopped for a beer on the way home. And Hulk called me and said, did you hear about Roddy? Because I was, you know, I was on my Harley, we were in Yellowstone, didn't really have cell service, so I wasn't checking in with news or anything. And I was, I'll never forget, I was sitting at a bar in Livingston, I had a beer sitting in front of me, and you know, Hulk said, you're not gonna believe this, I was just talking to Roddy night before last, and, and now he's gone. And it was just, I, I, not because I had affection or respect for Roddy, and I don't wanna make it sound like we were best friends or anything like that, because that wasn't the case. But there was a relationship there um, that I do miss. You know, I, I really do. And one of the last things I'll say, and I said this about Randy Savage, too, and it was true in Roddy's case as it, as it was with Randy's. One of the reasons I think I put Roddy on a bit of a pedestal um, in terms of people that I've had the pleasure and the honor of working with is because I remember seeing Roddy when Roddy wasn't even – he didn't even know I was around, He thought I was in catering or out on the floor doing something at the ring or something during the middle of the day. But I would watch Roddy as he talked to not only my kids, because my kids were around frequently, but I saw when there were other younger kids around, the way that Roddy would spend extra time and make so sure that those kids felt really, really important And that that brief moment of meeting Roddy Piper or talking to Roddy Piper was something that made them feel good about themselves. That's how I judge people. That and and Roddy Piper was. I'm gonna get a tear in my (laughs) eye. Roddy was Roddy was the best of the best. There was a massive amount of anticipation on everyone's part. The fans everybody in WCW, you know, pay-per-view company. I mean, every, everybody felt, we knew this was going to be the show of shows for WCW up to this point. And everybody, and I'm not just talking about Hogan for sure, everybody had worked so hard for 16 or 17 months for this particular moment. Other talent, writers, producers, everybody, Sting himself, everybody had worked really hard. At at getting to this exact moment so let's go back to earlier in the day I got to the building probably about 11 o'clock in the morning a little earlier than I normally would for a pay-per-view we were on the East Coast obviously the pay-per-view didn't start till I think eight o'clock at night typically I would get to the building around noon or one o'clock for a production meeting but I got there a little bit earlier that day probably because I was thinking about my own match and I knew that I was going to be a little busier or more distracted at the at the very least because I was going to be in, in, in the ring. And I was intimidated by that, by the way. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's the first time I had ever done it. Um, I didn't want to let anybody down. That was my biggest fear. I wasn't worried about embarrassing myself or doing anything stupid, but I was worried about, you know, I didn't want to let Larry down. I didn't want to let Brett down. I didn't want to let anybody down, especially the fans. I wanted to have a good payoff. And I was slightly... Preoccupied with that, so I got to the building early. Things went pretty well. I think Sting got to the building about 1. 30, 2 o'clock, which would have been right about on time for him. Now, you know, we pretty much had an idea what we knew what the finish was going to be going into this. So there was no there was no question about you know who was going to win and who was going to lose. We knew that. We had known that for twelve months. The question was how do we get there? So. Sting showed up in my, my dressing room. Hawk was already there. Um, and when he walked in, I don't want to over-dramatize this. And I also want to say, I'm, go- I'm not going to share everything in this recall because some of this stuff was personal to Steve Borden, a.k.a. Sting. And since he's never shared it, it's not up to me to do that. Just not going to do it. But I will give you as much information as I can. So... We, Sting walks in and both Terry and I kind of had the same, we didn't acknowledge it to each other, but we both had a similar reaction, which is, wow, you know, he, he doesn't look very excited about this. This was before we had one syllable of a conversation about what the finish was going to be or how we were going to get there. Sting, much like Meltzer observed during Sting's walkout, Sting had the same lack of energy or presence, I guess, is even a better way of saying it. It was almost like he was only half there when he walked in the room. Now, Singh had, and I think he has acknowledged in the past, that he was going through a lot of personal things in his life at the time. And ironically, because I, I had become very close to Singh leading up to this this particular angle. Singh came out to Wyoming with his former wife and, you know, was looking and buying property right down the road for me, and we went to Yellowstone together and did a bunch of nature photography. I mean, we rode Harleys together. I'd occasionally go to over to his house on the weekends, and when the weather was good in Atlanta, we'd jump on our Harleys and drive around. So it wasn't like we just had a purely business relationship. Certainly not best friends or anything like that, but we were, we were close enough where we would, you know, we would talk, generally. I didn't know because, you know, Sting, you know, during the, the whole Crow Angle as it began, and the character just kind of showed up in the rafters and didn't really talk and didn't really engage with anybody. Well, that wasn't just the character. That was really what was going on with Steve Borden. He, Steve used to be, he wasn't like a huge party animal. He Not at all, as a matter of fact. Um, he... he you know, he wasn't the guy, you know, hanging out with the boys at the bar. He wasn't that kind of a social animal. He and Lex, even, you know, prior to all of this, you know, pretty much stayed to themselves. You know, they didn't hang out with the with with, with the team, so to speak, after the shows. But Steve was always very sociable. You'd see him backstage and he was always talking to people and laughing and joking and playing cards and doing all the things most guys did. But once we started the crow, character and that, that angle leading up to this pay-per-view I didn't really notice it a lot at first the first several months but Sing would show up very late because he didn't you know we weren't working out finishes he wasn't cutting promos he wasn't doing all the things that normally would happen during a show he was simply showing up we knew what the stunt was we knew what the entrance was we knew when it was going to be it was pretty cut and dry um, so he'd get to the building the time to rehearse the the rappel um, with with Ellis Edwards And then he'd go off by himself. He didn't socialize a lot. I quit socializing or talking to to Steve just as much simply because I just didn't see him. He'd come into the building, and do his thing, and he'd leave. And he was almost like a ghost, very similar to his character, believe it or not. So what we didn't realize and what a lot of us didn't know is just the depth of the personal issues that Steve was having in his life. It wasn't apparent to us. Now at Starcade, you know, now fast forward 16 months. Now we show up at Starcade, and now it's time to kind of change that pattern. See if we had to get to the building pretty early. Now it's time to sit down and talk. And I know this is gonna sound ridiculous, but none of us had seen Steve without his gimmick on, right? We didn't realize that he quit working out. We didn't realize, for example, I know this sounds artificial or, or superficial, I should say, and, and childish, but he didn't even bother to to tan. And I know that sounds funny to people who aren't in the business, but I guarantee you everybody that you watch on WWE spends a certain amount of time maintaining their tan, however they do it, <clears throat> naturally or unnaturally. You know, you've know, you got to take care of your body. You're, you're out there in your underwear, for crying out loud. You've got to look the part, right? And when Steve came in, he was substantially smaller. He obviously had not been to the gym, um, you know, agreeing with the point that Dave made that he noticed during the walkout. We noticed when Steve walked into our room. He'd obviously not been to the gym. There was no preparation, you know, physically on, on Steve's part. He hadn't even bothered to spend 20 minutes getting a spray tan. For crying out loud. So, it, you know, and Hulk and I talked about it after the fact, long after the fact, you know, certainly not in that moment, but I think we both recognized the same thing that this, this guy that just walked into the room, Steve Borden is a shell of the Steve Borden that we thought we were going to see. And it, 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 it was almost shocking in a way. I mean, that's not saying he was emaciated and, you know, run down and look like a wino. That's not true either. But What we expected, given the magnitude of what we had built and where we knew we were going to go and what we were planning on doing, we expected somebody to come in to that room ready to play at the very highest level. And what we saw was the same thing that Dave Meltzer saw.
0: So the original plan, tell us what the original plan for the finish was. And and when why you thought it needed to, I mean, you explained why it needed to pivot, but what the pivot was and who suggested it,
1: you know, this is going to piss a lot of people off. You know, the original finish was saying was going to go over how he was going to go over. That wasn't my deal. You know, I, I, I didn't ever get involved, even at this point in the details of the finish just wasn't my strength. I can't emphasize that enough. And, and rather than engaging myself and involving myself in things that I knew I didn't really know enough about, um, I let the talent have a lot of say, especially somebody like Steve and Hulk Hogan. Who, who better, you know, who on our, our roster of talent, not talking about wrestlers, but in terms of producers and bookers and whatever you want to call them, agents, who better than to figure out a great finish for that particular match than the two guys involved, right? In a normal circumstances, that would have been easy to do this was not a normal circumstance. We knew what the finish was that we wanted before we got to the building, before we, before we got on a plane. we knew about a months in advance, we knew we wanted Sting to go over how he went over. He had to go over strong. He had to, we had to end this story exactly the way the audience wanted it to end on the highest note possible. That was the finish going in. How, how we were going to get there on a step-by-step basis, um, I can't tell you because I wasn't involved. Now, in terms of the changes, as a result of really feeling and believing, as much as you know, I like Sting as a human being, as a friend, as a performer, as a, one of the most loyal WCW you know talents on the roster. He just he wasn't up for it. It's like he I I want to try to do an adequate job of explaining this without over overstating it. It's almost like he didn't believe it was actually going to happen long, long, long before he got to the months ago. Maybe when the whole angle first started. This is the, I'm not saying he felt this way. I'm saying this is the impression that we had, I had. I'll speak for myself. Um, the impression I had is that this whole thing, this whole big buildup, um, he never believed it was really going to happen. He, he believed he was going to get screwed out of an opportunity, and he quit six months before this event. He quit caring. He quit taking care of himself. He, he quit preparing. He showed up with no energy, with no anticipation, with no enthusiasm. It was just like, okay, you guys are going to fuck me. So let's get it over with. That was the vibe that I got. Whether he, I don't think he really felt that way, but that was the vibe he was giving off. And as a result of that, we probably went through five or six different, you know, alternatives and options, maybe more because we knew we were in trouble. Terry, you know, after we talked with with Steve and Terry and myself, you know, Steve left the room and we said, okay, let's reconvene in an hour. Let's think about where we're at. Let's think about what we've talked about so far and then we'll come back and pick it up again in an hour. Because sometimes you just got to let this stuff kind of set in and start to visualize it and make sense out of it. And uh, after Steve walked out the door, you know, Terry and I both just looked at each other and and Terry said, you know, brother, he's he's not ready. He's not into this. And I, I agreed with him. Not because he was Hulk Hogan and as Dave Meltzer or, you know, any other dirt sheet writer probably would have wanted to write at the time that, you know, I was letting, you know, Hulk Hogan run the company. It wasn't it. It just wasn't it. And as evidence, you know, not that I'll ever use Dave Meltzer to prove a point, but, you know, the same vibe that Meltzer had was the same vibe that we had. It's like, dude, we spent an entire, almost a year and a half building this angle we've sacrificed by I mean sacrificed but we've used so many great characters along the way to escalate this arc and to make sure that it builds appropriately we maintain momentum we've done something that had never really been done before in recent wrestling history and, and and hasn't been done yet by the way which is you know creating a story at the very beginning and building it over the course of 17 or 18 months and not only doing it but doing it as as well as we did almost flawless, arguably, in, in, to be honest about it. So to get to that moment and to feel before we even, you know, had lunch, like the air was out of the bag, was very disappointing for everybody. I'm sure it was disappointing for Steve. I know it was disappointing for Terry. I know I was disappointed. And I know everybody that tried to had to make, you know, had to, had to figure out how to solve this problem um, was as frustrated as we all were.
0: So you guys make the pivot to do the screw job finish. How do you lay it out to Nick Patrick and, and Brett Hart?
1: Again, and I'm not, I'm not begging off. And it's, I mean, if I would have been involved in it, I would walk you through, you know, my, my involvement in it. I was involved in the discussion in terms of, okay, we, we, have got to change the finish. We've got to come up with something different than what we came up with, because what we came up with, is not going to really work? Um, then it went to, you know, the Kevin Sullivans and, and Terry himself and Steve and everybody involved. And I'm sure that, you know, Terry Taylor probably chimed in to a degree as he would and should have. Um, you know, I, I didn't get involved in the finish or the, or the or the details of it.
0: You know, in the time since then, the referee, Nick Patrick, has said that One person, the boss of WCW came and told him to do one thing. And then the real boss of WCW came and told him to do something else. And he's referencing the fast count. And it's insinuated that you told Nick Patrick to do the fast count and that Hogan told him to count regular. Did you tell Nick Patrick to do the fast count?
1: No, no. And look, well, let me, let me, let me retract that. Maybe, maybe if. At some point during the course of the day, and I know this is going to sound like smarmy and sleazy and like I'm trying to avoid it. I hope the people that listen to the show and have been listening to the show you know, for the six months you and I have been doing it, I think it's almost six months, realize that I'm not afraid to take any heat or responsibility for some of the stupid shit I did. I'm not. I have, I have no qualms about taking responsibility for some of the bad decisions I made or mistakes that I made along the way. Um, I'm not going to take it here, um, at least not where I deserve, where I don't deserve it. Now, here's how here's how Nick Patrick may have been telling the truth, to a degree. If at some point during the course of the day, Kevin Sullivan, or Terry, or Steve, would have come to me and said, "Okay, we've got to figure it out. Here's what we're going to do," great. As long as it got me to where I needed to be, again, the end always hangs in the beginning. As long as that show ended exactly the way I wanted it to end, I didn't really give two shits how we got there. Because when I say I didn't give two shits, it's not that I didn't care. It's just that my my opinion of how we got there wasn't as valuable as the opinions of people that had more experience than I did. Rightly or wrongly, I relied upon them. And, and I very rarely questioned finishes. As long as, to me, as a layman in that particular field of expertise, the the finish led me to the, the very end, the very last 30 seconds of the scene at the end of that movie, then I was happy with it. But how you got there was sausage-making, and I wasn't a good sausage-maker. So if somebody would have come to me and again, somebody, you know, like a Kevin Sullivan or Terry himself or Steve and said, Okay, Eric, we gotta figure it out. This is what we're gonna do. I would have said, Great. And if Nick Patrick would have come up to me, or if I would have crossed cross paths with Nick, and he would have said, Hey, do you guys know what we're gonna do yet? I would have conveyed to him what I was what I was told. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. And I also would have said, by the way, make sure. As I often did, not just in this case, but, you know, when it came to a match of this high profile with personalities as big as this and, and this high profile, I would have made sure that that referee was in the room while the finish was being laid out. Okay? Um, it's not like, you know, on the way out to the ring, the talent would get together and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, the, the, the referees were is engaged or should have been is engaged in the, laying out the finish of a match as the two principals in the ring. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, but if Dick if would have come up to me at some point during the day, if I had been told, here's what we're going to do, I would have communicated that to Nick, and I would have said, no, get your ass in the room and get with the guys and make sure you understand what they're going to do so you, you know. You're not hearing it from me secondhand. That could have happened, and it could have changed throughout the course of the day, as it often does, even to this day. Finishes change right up to the last moment in one of the most successful, well-oiled, well-structured wrestling companies in the history of the world. So it wasn't unusual then, as it's not unusual now. Um, But we weren't as good at it then. The communication wasn't as good. The infrastructure, the process, the protocol probably wasn't nearly as good as it could have been, or there wouldn't have been any confusion. And there was. Admittedly, there was confusion as a result of the lack of good communication and and protocol.
0: Two things I want to Talk about here. One is that Nick Patrick wasn't even the original plan for this referee spot. Allegedly, the reason they did this whole "we're not going to announce who it is and we'll decide at the pay per view and we're going to draw it out of a hat" was that you guys, even up until the last few days, were trying to make a play or liked the idea of making a play to get Earl Hebner, the guy who screwed Bret Hart the prior month at Survivor Series in Montreal. To come in with the idea that if his name was drawn out and you realize it's the same referee that screwed Brett Hart, then when Brett comes in and does the run in, maybe that makes sense. Now, the reason I bring this up is if you had that sort of in mind.
1: We, we didn't though. I mean, we didn't, and we can play with that if you want to, you know, hypothetically, I don't, I have no problem doing that because I love the idea. It's a very cool idea. It's first I've heard of it by the way,
0: Okay, but so it's,
1: it's so... really exciting because, because of the Brett situation. Sure. But anybody, I have to, I just got to say this, and then we'll play with it. Um, Anybody that knew Brett at this particular
0: point in time. He he wasn't having that.
1: Not a fucking chance. Not a chance. It's just, and that's why, again, you know, up until a few days before the event, we're actually trying to get Earl Hebner.
0: Give me a fucking break. What, what What was written verbatim is... Nick Patrick was going to turn heel as a ref in a role that was originally designed for Earl Hebner. However, WCW either never made a strong enough effort to contact Dave or Earl, or they turned down the offer because it's obvious that that's what the original role in this match was booked for. It's obvious to who?
1: I don't mean to interrupt you, Conrad. I know it's rude, and and I love you for giving me the opportunity to do this podcast, but when you roll through something like that, I got to point that out according to who
0: you're misunderstanding what he's saying is obvious it's obvious that the role was to be a heel referee okay so i mean we understand we agree on that right it's obvious that there's going to be a heel referee that's the reason the Bret hart situation happened so maybe he's freestyling but it would have been pretty awesome if hebner would have won the the referee lottery but that wasn't in the plans um, Meltzer would write after a lackluster match, even which saw boring chance two minutes in. Hogan delivered the foot to the face and the leg drop finish. At this point, the plan was for Patrick to deliver a fast count and have Sting still kick out before three, but Patrick would rule it as a pin, leading to Bret Hart avenging the wrong done to him at Survivor Series and getting the match restarted, taking over as referee, leading to Sting winning with the Scorpion submission in the middle. A funny thing happened. Patrick didn't count fast. Now I'm going to keep going through the recap because Meltzer makes some good points in here, but first I want to ask, was Brent Hart always supposed to be involved in the finish? I mean, we know that, you know, how we're going to get there is going to change, but it does feel like if he's the referee in your match for thunder, which we talked about, uh, or not sure, rather that maybe having him come back out, you've already had a, a precedent set that he's a referee. Did that just fall in your lap, or was that ever even discussed before day of? As far as you knew,
1: honestly, I'm not sure I understand the question. The, uh,
0: so, so th- three days before, was was Bret Hart going to do anything beyond referee your match? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. Meltzer would say you can miss time a ref bump. You can blow a move, but how can you blow a fast count? The only reasonable answer to this is Hogan changed the spot in the ring and Patrick didn't want to cross Hogan because of all the power he wields, even though the plan was different coming off the Hart Michaels deal, which has been the catalyst for everything in the business since is Bischoff and Hogan and nobody else, perhaps thing decided to do a non fast count when there was supposed to be a fast count on an angle is your head spinning yet, but that doesn't make sense either because why would they have the announcer sell it as a fast count the next day so hard when in fact it wasn't. And it was the case of the guy who got screwed and made a fool would have been Hart, who, if anything, this company was trying to portray after the matter, the last company did. So the idea here is the announcers are really pushing the next day. That it was a fast count, but anybody who's paying attention can see it's not a fast count. Did you have a conversation with Nick Patrick on the heels of this event as to why the fast count didn't happen?
1: I had a brief conversation with him. <clears throat> I mean, was, look. I know there, you know, and I don't hear it as much anymore or read it as much anymore, but, you know, the narrative used to be what a hothead I was and how I'd lose my temper and lose my cool, none of which is true. I very seldom lost my temper. Um, I wasn't the most personable person, meaning social. You know, I didn't walk around backstage when I'd see people catering and shake hands, You know, do the normal wrestling, you know, professional courtesy gimmick, um, superficial as it usually is. I never did it. You know, and oftentimes when I get to the building, I was overwhelmed. I'm, I we're understaffed. I'm inexperienced. I'm focused on what I'm doing, and occasionally people would walk by me, and I wouldn't look up and say, "Hey, how are you doing?" I would just go about my business, and as a result of that, I had this reputation. And I think it's you know, where they you know throwing coffee at any grill, which by the way never happened, you know, and all that stuff. You know, my my reaction to things and the way I, I reacted to them has been distorted over the years. Typically, when something like this happened or something went wrong, as, as as it did in this case, I always looked at it, and I still do. Look, I can't change it. I can't fit right now. Me losing my fucking cool and yelling and screaming and throwing shit is going to change absolutely nothing. The water, the, the, the as I usually say, the bullet has left the barrel. I can't put it back. It's gone. Now all I can do is focus on trying to fix it so did I confront Nick yes I did did I lose my mind did I scream and did I yell did I corner him say how the fuck could you possibly do this how could you get this? none of that happened it was a conversation that was probably less animated than, one, than the one I'm having with you and it probably sounded something like Nick what the fuck He he would have told me whatever happened or how it got miscommunicated, which was clearly the case here, it was miscommunication. It wasn't Hulk Hogan, you know, working the gimmick. It wasn't wasn't trying to take it. It wasn't any of that. It was poor communication. Simple as that. It, it just it, it it just irks me to have to still, you know, listen to people espouse this narrative of it was just another Hulk Hogan plan.
0: Oh, which, Eric, come by, on. By,
1: by the way, in which case he would have gotten nothing more out of it. He wouldn't made 10 cents more come on with one finish than he would with
0: another now go ahead no i'm just saying like dude you yourself say that he'd rub that old fu manchu and say that doesn't work for me brother and now you're gonna act like it's ludicrous that we might think that that's what happened here when you managed to fuck up the single biggest moment in the history of wrestling and now 20 years later you get on here and lie through your fucking teeth and say it's because he wasn't tan
1: I'm not lying through my fucking teeth. You fucking finish over a tan? Is this real? Yeah, it is real. And the tan was one aspect of it. It, it may be a small aspect to you and, and to, to the fans listening to this. But when you've got a talent that shows up that is totally not prepared nor engaged, has, not before, has had 12 or 16 months to get ready for this moment where we're going to make this huge, huge change in the direction of the company, and the guy shows up like he just heard about it 45 minutes ago, it tends to make you rethink your position. And whether you agree with it or not agree with it, you know, the, the fact that your good buddy Dave Mouser even recognized the lack of energy and the lack of, in, in yeah. terms of expectation, the lack that represented Sting during his walkout was the same thing that we felt. So, yeah, it makes you change your direction. And it wasn't because of a tan. It was because a combination of a whole lot of things that suggested to us that this guy's head was not in the game, which, by the way, Steve has admitted. Later on, after the fact, due to the circumstances in his personal life, there were, he was going through a lot of shit. His head was not in the game. We recognized it and we made a decision afterwards. That's the truth. You may not like it, but it doesn't make it a lie.
0: Here's the reality. After you've had this built up for 15 months and now you tell the guy right beforehand, that the finish that everybody and their fucking brother knows is coming. Is now not happening. And we've been building to this single moment. Is it any wonder that he's not out there fucking high-fiving and kissing babies? No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 you, you know, I'm not going to let you off.
0: You're not going to get away
1: with that. If Steve would have walked through the doors the way he should have been, the way he should have been, which was prepared, ready to go. the finish. And by the way, who walked out of there with the World Heavyweight Championship that night?
0: Well, that's what I'm still, that's what I'm so curious
1: about. No, 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 about. no. Let's, let's skip ahead. Who walked out? You, you, the right guy, but you fucked it up. That's my point. Like, I How did do we fuck it up? How did we fuck it up? Look at the end of that show. Look at the reaction. It's easy to say this in hindsight, and it may not have been as good as it could have been because what could have been, had all of the circumstances been what they should have been, it would have been a massively clean, right over the top, no confusion finish with Steve. Guess what? Got to go to plan B. His head is not in the game. That character didn't show up prepared to do what it needed to do. Somebody else did. So we had to adjust to make sure that we got the reaction we wanted to get. Yes, it was a decision. Yes, it was a choice. But I, I will stand by it to this day. If, if you had somebody working for you, Conrad, and I'm I, look, this is going to be a horrible analogy and a dangerous parallel here, but... You know, you're a very successful guy. You've built up a great reputation with your mortgage company. You have certain expectations of the people that work for you. If you're ready to close a big deal, the big deal that you and I talked about that you're working on, you know, right now or is coming up soon. And somebody who was very important to that equation showed up 20 minutes before the meeting looking like he just got out of bed. I'm not saying that's the way Steve looked, but totally unprepared. And you realize, holy crap, I've been relying on this guy to live up to this particular moment and his head is not in the game. I think I have to go to a plan B. That, it's what you do. It may not be what you it may not be what you want to do. You may feel right or wrong 20 years after the fact, but in that moment you feel like you're doing the right thing. And that's you know, that's that's as much justification as I'm gonna try to to give this. Because no matter what I say, you're going to feel the way you feel. You know, people are going to feel the way they feel. And that's fine. But I'm telling you, as a guy that was there, what the motivation was. Why would we as a company, why would Hulk sell if Hulk was so selfish and just wanted everything for himself? Which I don't understand anyway. Because, again, he didn't make a dollar more one way or the other. Because Hulk Hogan,
0: out of his own mouth, just two fucking months ago, less than that, said... In front of a a packed house at the NWO reunion, I was told this business was a work, but brother, when the guy with the belt makes the most money, well, now it's a shoot, brother.
1: That doesn't always, yeah, that applies in a lot of situations. And when you, when you, you know, more often than not, when someone says who's the biggest star in the business, Stone Cold Steve Austin or or Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan is going to use that reference. He's going to go back to that tagline that he's used, you know, probably a half a million times over the last 30 years. It's really all about who makes the most money at the end of the day. But in this particular case, let's use that now. Does Hulk Hogan make any more money at the end of the day, whether Steve Sting goes over clean or goes over with an assist or goes over with you know, a Bret Hart involvement? Does, does Hulk Hogan make more money that way, or does Hulk Hogan make more money just beating Sting clean? Hulk, you
0: know, Hulk Hogan makes more money by having a disputed finish that you guys can then come back and do big houses at subsequent pay-per-views.
1: He didn't, no, that's not true. He's going to be on that pay-per-view anyway. Are you suggesting that, you know, for somehow Sting's going to come out on top and we're going to leave Hulk Hogan home when he was the hottest heel in the industry at that point?
0: I'm suggesting that he wants to make sure that he's got the next few pay-per-views lined up where it's him and Sting. He, no, that's not it's just not true. Well, I mean, here's what I'm saying you're saying. He's not ready, but all you can cite is, uh, he wasn't excited backstage and he didn't have a tan. And it's so all
1: I'm going to, it's all I'm going to say, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to go into the deeper, darker details. Listen, of
0: this. listen, this is a, this is a business where no matter what's going on, you try to wheel them out there, whether it's Jeff Hardy at a TNA pay-per-view or whatever, that's not true. That's not true. Now, hang on. Here's my point. This is the highest, this is the hottest angle in the history of the company. You sold more T-shirts. He is the top merchandise seller now, not the NWO. It's the highest ratings. It's the hottest angle. All you've got to do is Stinger, Splash, Scorpion, Deathlock, tap the fuck out. We're done. But we overcomplicate it and convoluted it because we want to bow to the to the fucking master and make sure that he's got a few more pay-per-views. That's what happened. Now you can That's say, not what happened. It's that, not what happened.
1: That is what fucking. You happened. were home. You were home popping fucking pimples while you know watching this shit on TV when
0: it happened. Yeah. you weren't there.
1: I was there. That's yeah. Not you were there happened. driving
0: it in a fucking ditch. That's where you were. This would have been real easy just to do the easy goddamn finish, but you let Hulk over fucking convoluted. Now whether you acknowledge that you did that on purpose or not is another thing. Nick Patrick is the guy who fucked it up, and you didn't fire him, but you fired fucking Honky tonk Man for not wanting to do a job to Mark Marrow. What the fuck? What does it take to get fired in this fucking company? Jacqueline doesn't want to fucking put over Miss Elizabeth. Get the fuck out of here. You ruined our biggest goddamn pay-per-view ever. See you tomorrow. What the fuck? I don't
1: don't know that that, you know, look, I can can easily see, and I could see them. I'm not going to fire a guy. I'm not going to fire Nick Patrick because the communication between the principals involved in the match and the referee sucked not going to fire him for that there was a lot of confusion there were a lot of people involved and i'm um, you know if somebody if somebody does you know what does it take to get fired or what did it take to get fired you know with me um you know it was tough to get fired despite the fact that you know i had this reputation of loving to fire people i've fired very few people one of the biggest mistakes i've probably made during my time at wcw frankly was not firing a whole the fuck bunch more that i'll that i'll cop to Um, and maybe I should have fired Nick, but I don't think it was Nick's fault. I think it was the agent's fault. And I think it could have been the talent's fault.
0: So let me ask, let let me ask, since you said his head's not in the game, you guys go to a rematch the very next night. I don't know why the fuck you're giving away your biggest shit ever the very next night on nitro, but you were, but you go off the air before it's done. You get more complaints than any time in WCW history the Tuesday after, because you promised the match and then don't show the finish. But you do smash the competition in the process, which is the name of the game. It's numbers. You get a 4.6. Raw gets a 3.6. Eventually, you strip the title of Sting, which backs up what you're saying. His head's not in the game. Blah, blah, blah. But you fucking give it to him in February. What's the difference? Magically, his problems at home are better. What'd you do? Get him a goddamn tanning bed? What changed between the end of December and fucking Super Bowl in February?
1: You done? Jeez. Conrad. Settle down, big man.
0: All right, Eric, that's it, man. The end of our uh, our very first ever Best Of edition. And uh, it's your birthday. What are you going to go do? What are you going to celebrate? How are you going to ring in the new 64-year-old? Vert <laughs> You know,
1: uh, Sonny Ono and his wife, uh, Julie, are here. So I'm guessing while I have an extra night here in Las Vegas with them, I'm pro- there's probably going to be copious amounts of sushi involved.
0: Well, that sounds good. And maybe when you get home, Mrs. B can give you a present from Blue Chew maybe? Yeah, no, Mrs. B is in Los Angeles uh, visiting with our daughter who ran a marathon uh,
1: on Sunday. So, um, yeah, Mrs. B's not home now. I get home a day before Mrs. B, so I'm going to probably load up on the Blue Chew make sure everything's uh ready because i haven't seen her now in about two weeks so i've got to remember just how impressive i really can be
0: well go make an impression tiger and happy birthday uh, from myself and everybody who's enjoyed the show this last year we really appreciate all of your support uh and uh, obviously we know that sometimes uh, best ofs aren't everybody's cup of tea but we felt like since we've got so many new listeners we should reintroduce some of the early stuff you know that that sting shouting match you and I had—that's in this episode.
1: Oh, I would imagine it is. People, people love, people love it when you kick my ass. I don't know if I like this arrangement as much, but yeah, the people do respond to that. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. I'm anxious to hear the whole thing myself.
0: Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week with another brand new barrel of stories from the good old days of professional wrestling. From the person who administers them better than anybody else, Eric Bischoff. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Tylus and Callaway and on and on and on, right. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.